Welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. This is Caleb. And this is Andrew. And uh, welcome to our next installment of Haudenosaunee Tales. There's kind of a disclaimer on this one, though, Andrew, because it's possible that this is not a Haudenosaunee tale. Yeah, so we should probably give the quick background on it. It's a story about a waterfall, but not just any waterfall, Caleb, but the highest straight drop waterfall east of the Rocky Mountains. And the other interesting thing about this cataract is it's called Taganic, but that name is not Iroquoian. Any idea what it is? Well, I do because I've read the story, but uh, no, Andrew, um, no, please tell me, what is it? Oh, it's Delaware. And you may be thinking to yourself, how the heck did a place in the part of the Cayuga Nation get a Delaware name? That's exactly what I was just thinking, Andrew. Will you please enlighten me? Well, we don't know, is the correct answer. There's no place, as Caleb mentioned, that we've found to back up historically the name or the account. But this is where this legend originates in the written code. It's from a 19th century historian by a guy named Dr. D.H. Hamilton. He was a uh, local minister around Cayuga Lake. He was a firebrand avid abolitionist and a, a local historian. So he wrote down this story and published it in his works about the Taganic Falls. This was written down in the early 1800s, so it is possible that he did know Cayuga people that still lived there, and he learned the tale from them. But on the other hand, he could totally be making up this entire story. But it could be 100% accurate. We really have no idea either way. Andrew, uh, around what time was James Fellamore Cooper's series of books about the deer hunter released? I think Last of the Mohicans was 1826. So if you look at the time that this story was allegedly written down, it was shortly after or right around the same time that that book had already become famous around the world. So it is possible that this doctor might have been trying to cash in on some of this uh, noble, savage novels that are going around and selling that, you know, because the stores couldn't keep these books on the shelves. They were selling like hotcakes. On the other hand, you're going to see a lot of parallels between this story and the end of Last of the Mohicans. So maybe the story was floating around beforehand and it inspired Fenimore Cooper. We just really don't know. There's a lot of ambiguity about everything here. But either way, it's a really cool story, so let's get on with it. There was once a leader belonging to the Anadaga Nation. His name was Canastatego. In those days, there was a fraud committed by the children of William Penn or as we called him, Onus. The Delaware claimed that they were dispossessed of their land by a so-called walking purchase. The Delaware agreed to sell a piece of land that a man could walk in a day's journey. But the devious men of Pennsylvania cleared roads in the woods and hired runners to take much more land than was intended. The Delaware appealed to their older brothers of the Six Nations, asking them to intervene diplomatically to restore their property for the Delaware were props to the Confederacy, and their own power was weak. Canastatago of the Onondaga met with the Delaware, but he told them that he would not speak for them. The Six Nations had good relations with the people of Pennsylvania, and they needed to keep it that way. 
Canastatego told the Delaware that they were not warriors, but just women, and they should not have sold their land to begin with. Besides, it was really Iroquois land anyway. It would be best if the Delaware moved west to open hunting lands that the Confederacy controlled by the River Ohio. At this, the Delaware became incensed. Their honor had been bruised by these words. Some Delaware agreed to move away, but others remained in the Wyoming Valley because they'd been there for generations and could not part with their homeland. One of the young leaders was named Taganic. He swore vengeance against the Onondaga and all of the Six Nations for their failure to protect his homeland. He stood before his people and gave a proud and elegant speech. He rallied others that shared his view together, and they began to form a war party. That night, in the village, the men began their war dance. They jumped and swayed back and forth on their heels, and they rounded the central council fire. They yelled and screamed like the Celts of Europe or the Zulu of Africa. They cried their shouts and encouraged one another as they prepared for the warpath. They continued long into the night. As the fire slowly died away, darkness crept into camp, and along with it, darkness continued to creep into their hearts. The following day they departed their village, being nearly 200 strong. The women of the village provisioned them with cornmeal and dried meats, and other dehydrated berries for their expedition. It was not a short journey. They had to travel forest and mountain, cross stream and gorge. Their intended target would be to raid through the heartland of the Iroquois country. After passing through the Wyoming Valley, they came to Owego. Once there, they headed north, taking the trail towards Cayuga Lake. But their minds were not made up, and they discussed whether to attack a small village or perhaps a large town. The men noticed that the lands were abundant in game and wild fruit for which this region was famed among all the peoples of the Confederacy. And still to this day, the hills are cultivated with grapes and fruit trees. Finally, they decided to fall upon Canoga, a small town on the north end of Cayuga Lake. It would take them some time, for Cayuga Lake is nearly 40 miles long. But before they were even a few miles up the side of it, however, they were spotted. The Cayuga were completely taken by surprise at the sight of this large Delaware war party, fully painted for war, traveling through the heartland of their country. Immediately, the Cayuga runners were sent to the neighboring Cayuga towns. Then more messengers were sent to their brothers in the Seneca and the Onondaga nations. Swift young men carried the report faithfully with great haste. Soon men began to depart from Canoga, Owasco, and Canadegua, and all the other towns to rally to defend the Cayuga homeland. Canastatego himself was informed while he was at Onondaga. With all speed he departed to meet the treacherous Delaware head-on. He quickly assembled a band of warriors around him and hastened to Owasco Lake by the end of the day. There, other people joined his group. The day after that, they made it to the Lake of the Cayugas. They realized that the Delaware had been spotted on the other side, and also knowing that it would take them at least another half day to travel the 16 miles around the north end of the lake, they instead borrowed canoes at a landing and rowed across the body of water. The one-mile stretch of the lake was calm, 
and the men paddled with great speed. They all arrived safely on the other side in less than 30 minutes of rowing. Within a quarter of an hour, they entered the village of Canoga, where the council of war was already underway amongst the Seneca and the Cayuga. Not to waste any more time, they now combined forces and departed Canoga to find the hostile forces and defend their homes. Canastatigo and 200 of his men went directly south, while the Seneca and Cayuga went another way to the southwest. Soon, Canastatigo spotted the enemy. Light fighting took place on both sides, but there were few casualties. The Delaware knew that they were now outnumbered, and they soon realized that they must stay ahead of the game, or else their way of retreat back home would be cut off. The Onondaga pursued the Delaware all day, but by the evening the Delaware were able to throw them off their trail, and Taganic camped at a stream called Senecayuga. It was named as such since it flowed through the territories of both the Seneca and Cayuga nations. The Delaware decided to settle in for the night and pinch their camp. They were careful to make no fire so that their position would not be given away. When they awoke the next morning, however, they found themselves spotted by a group of Cayuga. They appeared just on the other side of the stream to the south. These men had just come up from Tutelo, a town near Ithaca, and they'd marched all night to reinforce their brothers. Then the Delaware were shocked to discover Seneca men coming up from the west. At the same time, the scouts of the Onondaga were approaching on the north. They quickly realized that they were surrounded. Chief Taganic of the Delaware decided to take his men to the stream at the head of Cayuga Lake. Canastatego realized what Taganic was trying to do and shadowed them from the left bank of the stream. The united Seneca and Cayuga bands pressed and followed in the same way on the opposite side of the water. The stream was running about knee-high because the recent rains had flooded it. It was only with great difficulty that the Delaware could even take a step without risking a slip and fall. To make things more difficult for Taganic, he soon realized that this stream was now cutting through a steep gorge. If any of his men tried to climb out of it, their enemies would be right above them and beat them back. There was now really no way to go except for downstream. The walls, however, soon helped them. As the cliffs rose even higher, this meant that the Iroquois could only watch them and not directly harass them. But Taganic and the Delaware were wholly ignorant of the terrain. The Iroquois knew exactly where this stream led. In a short time, the invaders came face to face with a horrible prospect. The stream that they had been following disappeared right in front of them. They looked forward in horror and saw, only a short distance ahead, the creek abruptly plunge straight down over 200 feet into a massive horseshoe canyon. They were totally hemmed in on all sides, surrounded by the Onondaga, the Cayuga, and the Seneca, were now to their backs and nothing but a steep cliff in front. They prepared for battle. So it would be here, at the edge of the falls, that the final fight was to take place. The young Taganic and his cohort encouraged one another, as it seemed that death was inevitable, and they resolved to meet it like true warriors that they were. This was not a time for cowards. They would die like men. 
Although surrounded on all sides with hundred-foot cliffs flanking them on each side, the Delaware formed ranks and shouted at the Iroquois to strike first. The men rushed in, and a bloody hand-to-hand -hand fight took place. War clubs and tomahawks were swung, while musket balls and arrows flew. Many hit their intended targets. The falls began to change color from a greenish-white to a light pink. Taganic whirled and danced as he fought. He killed the Cayuga war chief. Then he turned and sought Kenestatigo, hoping that he could take out the Onondaga leader who had dishonored him in the first place. Taganic broke the circle of braves which were encompassing him. With a knife in his hand, he lunged at Kenestatigo. He stabbed him several times, but before he could finish the job, he was finally overpowered and struck down by the Onondaga soldiers. Incapacitated, he lay on his back in the stream, and soon he was completely restrained. The fighting was now ending. The few remaining Delaware were backed up towards the edge of the falls at Spear Point. A few were able to break out and escape, but they were but a handful. The Iroquois phalanx pushed forward. Soon, the desperate men had nothing more to stand on, and one by one, they were pushed over the side of the cliff. Some jumped themselves rather than give their enemies the satisfaction, but each one of them fell with screams and yells that were drowned out by the noise of the rushing waters. Others, like Taganuk, were taken and tortured, but two men who were strong and well-favored were adopted by the Cayugas, who had lost friends in the battle. Taganuk was now kept alive, but only so he could be given the honor of torture. His arenda was strong, and a warrior such as him would be given the privilege of singing his death song before they dispatched him to the next life. And so Taganuk played the part. He sang his song. He defied his enemies and rejoiced that he had killed so many foes. He hurled back defiance at his tormentors and died as a man. When the breath of life was beginning to flee from him, the victors placed him back by the falls, and they pushed him over. Down tumbled what was left of the mighty Taganic, through the mist and onto the rocks. And so that is the reason to this day, that the Great Waterfall is no longer called Senecayuga, but Taganic. Now here's a question for you, Andrew. Yeah. Was this falls called Taganic before the story was published? It's always been called Taganic. So that does really show some chance that the story could be true, because why else would a Delaware-named waterfall be in the heartland of the Cayuga? No answer for you, but there's, yeah, there's got to be some Delaware influence somewhere. It could be just that simple. When they asked around to the Cayuga, what, what's the origin of this name, they could just be like, oh, uh, it's named after some guy who died here. Another uh, cool piece of trivia you might like to know is this is actually where the old proverb, don't go chasing waterfalls, comes from. Oh, that popular 90s song done by... Uh, TLC. Thank you. Yes. 
Yep, they got the idea from this. Oh. From the well, Taganic should have learned. So let that be a lesson to all you kids. Thank you very much for joining us today, folks. We remind you to please check us out on Facebook or on Twitter at Iroquois History. Don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes, and you can become a member of the Wild Sweet Potato Clan. And that's all we have for you today, folks. Join us next time when we start our series on the War of 1812. Bye, everybody.